You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week on the podcast, we're going to share a series of short excerpts from the CLE Showcase program that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security co-sponsored at this year's ABA Virtual Annual Meeting. The program is titled Hacking Democracy, Elections and Beyond, and was moderated by frequent podcast guest and senior counselor to the Standing Committee, Harvey Rishikoff. The speakers for the program, in order of their appearance on the podcast, will be Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor at CSIS, Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar, a Justice on the Supreme Court of California, and the Honorable James McPherson, Undersecretary to the Department of the Army. If you've registered for the ABA Virtual Annual Meeting, which is free for ABA members, and the meeting is ongoing until August 4th, you can access the entire recording for download or on-demand CLE credit from our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurities. So if you like the segment you've heard here, check it out online and listen to the entire recording there. In addition to finding us there, you can also check us out on Twitter at ABANatSec. Remember, the lawyers appearing on our podcast and at the annual meeting are here representing their own opinions and not on behalf of any agency or company. So this uh, activity or an interest of mine really stemmed from the work that I did as the undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security, responsible for critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. I spent much of 2016 working with my team, uh, working with election state and local election officials and our federal partners on trying to protect our election infrastructure. And these are uh, some of the things that we saw in 2016. As you know, we saw propaganda uh, efforts, a lot of what's come out in terms of what we saw on social media around election interference. Uh, We saw the hack and leak of emails, so combining traditional malicious cyber activity and information operations. But even that, which appeared to be strictly uh, traditional cyber activity, like the malicious activity around that attempts at hacking voter registration databases, we assessed to be actually part of the information operations. And, and that was, if you can imagine getting into those voter registration databases and altering that data, which is one of the things we worry about with malicious cyber activity. If you could get in and remove many names from the voter uh, registration, if you could change the spelling of names or the addresses, you could cause chaos on election day when people showed up to vote. And that could undermine the public's trust and confidence in the legitimacy of that process, leading them to question the legitimacy of the outcome. So as I got out and uh, understood that what we had seen from Russia with regard to interference in our election was just part of a much longer term effort that, that Russia had been engaged in to undermine our democracy and a much broader effort than just elections really targeting our democracy at large and its institutions. I began to think, all right, if I were Putin and I wanted to undermine public trust in democracy and its institutions, where would I go next? What other institution, like elections, is dependent upon the public's confidence in the legitimacy of its processes to respect the legitimacy of its outcome? And I immediately thought about the justice system. 
and think about the ways in which the activities that we saw in the 2016 election could be used against uh, the courts, whether it is the hacking and leaking of judicial emails or draft opinions, altering opinions and orders and altering uh, court documents and straight up social media and propaganda. So as we began to look to see whether in fact there was evidence that Russia was targeting our justice system and public faith and confidence, one of the first things we saw was something that happened in the summer of 2016 and any court across the country that thinks they are too small or, or town that thinks it, it, why would it be targeted? Uh, needs to pay attention to the story of what happened in Twin Falls, Idaho in the summer of 2016, where allegations were running rampant on social media that two Syrian refugees had raped a young girl at knife point and were later seen high-fiving their dads. The authorities had, in fact, uh, uh, taken into custody two young boys who had been in a uh, basement of a building with a young girl, and they were working them through the process. But of course, in cases involving juveniles, there's privacy protections and the authorities were slow to get the actual facts out. When they did, they made it clear there were no Syrian refugees, there was no knife, and there was no high-fiving of dads, uh, that all of those allegations were completely made up. But by then it had taken hold on social media. And I'm gonna show you just a couple of the tweets uh, of, the, of the many, many on social media. These are both, uh, appear to be from Americans, they are not. These are tweets that have been identified as uh, fake accounts created by Russian trolls sitting in St. Petersburg, Russia in the Internet Research Agency. And they are pushing the narrative that the justice system is broken uh, and they even went after the uh, U.S. attorney, Wendy Olson, who tried to encourage people to stop spreading the false information once the authorities had made it clear what the facts really were. Uh, and, and they went after the prosecutor, they went after the judge, they went after the politicians for covering up these crimes uh, by, um, by refugees. Here is a Facebook post by a group called Secured Borders, uh, urging folks to get out into the streets and to protest. The government officials and, and uh, prosecutors and judges who are covering up these crimes um, and putting refugees ahead of citizens need to be fired. Secured Borders was not a group of concerned Twin Falls, Idaho citizens. It was a fake affinity group created again by the Internet Research Agency in Russia. Uh, and they continued to be involved in trying to turn out protests all across the country. And uh, you can read about them in the DOJ indictment of September of 2018. Thank you so much, Justice Bear, for sort of laying out so eloquently. As I think you may know, um, the American Bar Association and CSIS Center with Suzanne uh, and the National Center of State Courts we're involved in a project working with the individual state courts and working through playbooks about how to respond to uh, potential attacks on the legitimacy of state courts and how to respond to what would be sort of ransomware attacks that raise the issues 
for IT defense. But I, my question to you is based on Suzanne's presentation and what you've raised, how do you as an individual justice, realizing that there may be attacks on the legitimacy of the court system by a variety of adversaries, what is sort of your either personal game plan or the institutional game plan that you would think about how you would go about protecting the integrity of the California court system? To hang out with you a bit and to listen to Suzanne and what she has to say, to find <laughs> allies, to hope that as people listen to this and they come to see that we are in this together, that we need some degree of engagement and prioritization of this. And frankly, to I would say at core, all of this depends on people in my position distinguishing a bit between the very uh, separate role that a court as an adjudicator has to have, where you're cut off from the world, where you're not having ex parte communications, where you're not having like robust, rich dialogues about the cases you're deciding as you're deciding them. But to distinguish that from the civic leadership, operational, deliberative, and institution building role that courts tend to have. And that's true at the trial court level where most of the work does uh, get done, frankly. You uh, rarely meet a successful, engaged judge who isn't thinking a bit about all the background activities that have to happen to keep that court sustained, about the experience jurors are going to have when they walk into a courtroom, about how difficult it is to adjudicate traffic cases, about um, how to go into local schools and talk about the courts. So I feel like that's sort of the pyramid on which all these more specialized considerations like cybersecurity or defending courts from disinformation are then built on. But if you don't have judges working with others robustly involved in laying that foundation, it's going to fall down. As, as COVID-19 health threat descended on our nation, the Army shifted into action. On March 18th, we designated the U.S. Army's Northern Command, a three-star command in San Antonio, Texas, commanded by Lieutenant General Laura Richardson, as the Joint Forces Land Component Command. Army North supported FEMA by matching federal military capability and capacity to FEMA's request for assistance on behalf of governors and other state and local officials. It's worth a few moments to relay some statistics to paint a picture of the military support to the COVID-19 fight. Even as you hear the numbers, please consider that they do not do justice to the long harrowing hours the men and women of our military dedicated to this nationwide effort. In total, Army North supported 134 FEMA approved mission assignments deploying and integrating about 9,000 service members from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps across the country. Army North brought unique military capabilities, transportation, logistics, communication, medical, and public and behavioral health support to the COVID fight. Military medical support of over 3,000 medical personnel covered a wide range of treatment from routine to emergency medical care, including treating COVID-19 positive patients. The medical personnel helped staff, staff nine alternative care facilities and 24 civilian hospitals in nine states, including 800 military medical personnel in 11 hospitals in New York during the height of the crisis. The U.S. Army Reserve created a new type of task force, the Urban Augmentation Medical Task Force, and deployed 14 deployable to 10 cities around the country. Each task force has 85 personnel, including doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, behavioral health providers, medics, and support staff. Do the math, that's 1,200 soldiers 
in direct support of hospitals, civilian hospitals around the country. Right now, we have them deployed to California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Throughout the COVID-19 response, Army North worked day and night with federal, state, and local officials to help civil authorities meet our nation's needs and to save lives. When military forces, our active duty component, are called to support the homeland, they fall under the umbrella term of defense support to civil authorities. Regular Army forces and activated Army Reserve units conduct these missions under the command of the President, exercised through the Secretary of Defense, and the combatant commanders, usually Northern Command. Army National Guard soldiers are state forces, and they fall under the command of their state governor. If National Guard forces are mobilized in a, what we call a Title X status, that is a federal status, then they become federal military forces. Let me shift gears to late May, early June, when civil unrest protests spread across the nation following the May 25th killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. Once again, the nation called on the Army to support civilian authorities, this time to ensure the protection of people and property. By June 6th, over 5,000 National Guard members and 1,200 active duty soldiers and 400 Army Reserve soldiers provided this critical support to civilian authorities in the form of aviation, military police, planners, and logistical support across the nation. Almost 6,600 soldiers were involved in that mission. Now, when it comes to law enforcement functions, state and local law enforcement agencies are responsible for the security. The Posse Comitatus Act and Title 10 of U.S. Code prohibit the use of active duty forces from direct participation in law enforcement activities. For the past four to five months, you've witnessed U.S. military service members, all services and all components, active duty, reserve, and National Guard, answer the call to duty, a call to support civil authorities, a call to assist their fellow Americans during a critical time in our history. You have witnessed our soldiers perform selflessly and professionally during these two major crises. It's an honor to serve Americans in their time of need, and it has been and is my distinct privilege to serve alongside our men and women in uniform. Have anyone found examples of activities that were effective in quelling or countering these divisive narratives, either here or abroad? Um, what are your thoughts to the panelists, um, Suzanne and Jim? Yeah, we have seen some some uh, good examples abroad, uh, largely in smaller and more homogeneous countries, unfortunately. Uh, but it is around this notion of uh, preventive medicine, if you will, of inoculating the public ahead of time. You know, Holly, or Harvey, your points about um, what could be persuasive voices on social media. We need to get those voices out ahead of time. We need to get in, try as best we can to get in front of the disinformation because what studies seem to be showing uh, is not only how rapidly lies uh, travel and so much faster than the truth, right? We all know the Mark Twain uh, expression, um, but that also when people go, even if people go to try to confirm information and they find things contrary, it somehow needs, it somehow results often in confirming their initial belief in the disinformation. So it's very complex and difficult, I think, once people have been exposed and inclined to believe something. The key then is to get out ahead of it, to remind uh, basic things like our shared values, right? If the, if the disinformation is aimed at sowing division, we need to be out there every single day 
working on reminding people about our shared values and how we can disagree, um, but that uh, there are some fundamental things that we agree upon and that we have in common, right? If the pernicious messaging, as I say, is about disengaging and giving up, uh, working against that through civic education and empowering individuals to know how they can be uh, effective, more effective agents of change. So it is that, uh, as I say, kind of inoculation against the messaging that I think is ultimately going to be most effective. Great. Thank you. Justice Quayer, I think, has been able to connect us through the magic of um, technology. But I think uh, what I'd like to ask Justice Quayer, because he's has to jump off in a few minutes is i have a question that under the judicial outreach week material are designated for judges to the public and any lawyer can use and adapt these materials to reach more people and tell them what judges actually do and why and they do it so i guess Justice Claire, the question to you is how do you see how the bar can assist and be of uh, a resource for you given your current uh, code of ethics what you can say and not say. Thank you for the question and thank you to all of you for listening today. These issues we're dealing with are enormously important and they're intellectually interesting, they're geopolitically important, they're fundamental to democracy. And so I don't I don't think any of us has a perfect solution, but I like your question because it underscores that we have to think creatively about how different parts of our profession can work together. I start from the premise that courts have to stand apart a little bit. What, what people expect from us is to be guardians of people's rights and and fiduciaries of the social commitments that we make. And to do that effectively, we can't be entangled day to day with everything happening in society. By the same token, like this sort of paradoxical reality is if we are so cut off from the realities of practice and the difficulties people face with access to justice, from the rough and tumble of the different debates people have about the courts, then we ultimately become isolated and less effective. So I would say the bar can be effective in helping us out in three different ways. First, by helping to educate the public about the importance of the court system and serving on juries, for example. Second, by looking for informal ways where we can dialogue about judicial administration and how courts can work more effectively. And third, by um, defending courts when we are attacked. And here the difficulty is to be thoughtful about the point about skepticism too. Courts are not in the business of just, you know, always being right, although we try to be, nor should the public simply bless everything courts do just because courts have done it. Um, as Justice Jackson used to say, we're not um, final because we're infallible. To the extent we're somewhat infallible, it's because we're final and somebody has to play that role. But I do think that when people disagree with the decision but still defend the system and the institution, it's very helpful, particularly given that so many people from uh, both outside and inside the country are trying to undermine it. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. If you enjoyed these segments from Hacking Democracy, Elections and Beyond, a CLE showcase program at the 2020 Virtual Annual Meeting, check us out on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. If you're registered for the annual meeting, you can view the entire program and get CLE credit for free. And the annual meeting registration is free for ABA members. So look for us online there. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. We'll be bringing you new episodes next week, and we look forward to seeing you then. Remember, we're all in this together, even though we are apart. Thank you for tuning in. 
the views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.